Welcome to Soul Forum. We're delighted to have you as we attempt to kind of democratize the experience of soul. Each conversation in this second season takes you deeper into the experience of your own body, the collective body, earth body, and even the cosmic body as we explore the way soul finds expression in our time. We hope what you discover along the way helps you journey a little deeper into your own soul body. Welcome. In the previous two episodes, Karen and I discussed the different ways that she finds her soul within the earth body. In this conversation, April speaks with her about the origins of her journey, from waking up in domestication to becoming feral, wild, and free, all while learning to coexist with the earth body and developing a more symbiotic relationship with this beloved planet we call home. All right, Karen, thank you for being here with me today. I'm really excited to talk to you and hear a little bit more about your story. So, you know, as you've gone along in, um, you know, your journey of being an activist and a passionate person around saving the earth, supporting the earth, being someone that is conscious of their impact on the earth, you know, where was the awakening for you that that, you know, kind of started happening? Were you born that way? (laughs) Did something happen? Thank you for this chance to get to um, speak some truth with you today and, um, yeah, share a little bit more about my story. And that's a big question to start on because, um, wow, you know, I, I would say it's, always been there for me my entire life um I my my mom likes to characterize me as being very strong-willed and independent and went from crawling to running and so I think that fits because where I grew up in the Oakland Hills I had a view from my bedroom window of the entire Bay Area I was able to see the Oakland Coliseum, all of the city of Oakland, Alameda, the Bay Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge. And we also had a backyard with grass that was flat. It was very unique to have that. And we had trees. And so it was this intense juxtaposition going on of the city clashing with the wild world. And I feel like I felt that my whole life um, deep, like that there was something that wasn't quite right. And I couldn't describe it. But looking back, I see the rebelliousness that was in me that was strong-willed and independent and wanting to have things my way and was in response to the wild, the creature born wild and free in me that was being domesticated out of me by the dominant culture that we all live in. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't have been able to express it then, but I see it now. And I, my parents were wonderful and, 
I got to go to Lake Tahoe quite a bit and I got to go to Yosemite mm -hmm. and I got to be in these wild places and feel so different when I was there. I, I loved the time with family, the, what felt like just calm and fun and connectedness to each other much more than the busy lives in the Bay Area. And I'm much more connected to all the wild creatures. But I was also able to take that home with me and feel that at home. And it was interesting to look out my window and see all these twinkly lights of the city and hear all the sounds. Uh, you could hear trains, you could hear you know, cars. And of course, I watched over time the, the Port of Oakland just like expand like exponentially mm -hmm. um, and the city get noisier and noisier. But I could still hear birds and I could hear squirrels chattering in the trees. And, and, and some of my most favorite times living there was when I would wake up and look out and the fog would have rolled in and it would have blanketed the entire city and just like come up like right to this grass we had in the backyard that made it look like you could just walk out right onto the fog. Mm -hmm. And all that city would disappear and it would feel so magical. And I would imagine like, what if it was like that, like all of the time? And what was this place like before all that city was there? And so it, it was always this thing that there was something not right. And, mm -hmm. and it took me until I got into my late thirties, early forties to really, um, put it all together and be able to realize that I was participating in, in a dominant story that I didn't think was going in the right direction for myself first, but then for all the rest of the community of life. Um, a intense journey into documentary watching um, and learning about every single system that industrial civilization uses from money systems, food systems, religious systems, mm -hmm. I'll call them that, um, you know, education, politics, just, and then of course, environment related to energy. Um, it was like, oh, like a huge gut check. And I was like, I, I can't just keep watching these films. I have to do something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that, brutal. yeah, and that rebel in me just really got fired up. And so that was when the decision was made to drive across the country and go get arrested at the White House. Um, oh, instead of going to ignorance is bliss, I'm not going to watch these documentaries anymore. You decided to do something. So who, who was that? that? What group did you join with that you ended up at the White House? Tell me about that. So that was um, called the Tar Sands Action in 2011. And it was organized by Bill McKibben and 350.org. And it was a pushback against the Keystone XL pipeline that was threatened to be built across the Canadian border into the United States from the Alberta tar sands. And 
that because it was crossing an international line, the decision to deny or approve the permit for this project was in the hands solely of um, Barack Obama. And so it, the idea was, let's get the president who had been elected on this environmental platform to actually do what he said he would do and get him to deny the permit for this. Right. And then the problem, I mean, beyond the whole fossil fuel issue, the problem also with that pipeline was around the destruction of ecosystems that was going to happen by building it through the, I don't know, the pathway that they wanted to build it, right? There was a, there was a lot of um, red flags related to the project. And yes, crossing over lands like the Ogallala Aquifer in Nebraska and crossing into, you know, indigenous territory and, you know, I'll, I'll use that in quotes, but <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, there was, it, it brought out a lot of like NIMBY issues, not in my backyard sort of thing, but mm -hmm. also, you know, James Hansen was saying, look, if this pipeline is built, um, it's going to be a fuse to this um, carbon bomb that is going to tank like burning all the fuels that would be coming out of the tar sands, it would be a guaranteed you know, game over for the climate. Um, and so there was a lot of different levels of concern. And so we, we said, okay, they wanted people to come and risk getting arrested or actually not risk, but get them. <laughs> I, I, I guess I didn't really know when they planned it, what would happen, but yeah. And so you knew the risk there, there was a risk of being arrested and that happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so then um, the whole question became, well, how do people go to protest fossil fuels in the most, you know, small carbon footprint way who want to get there from California? Mm. Good question. And <laughs> so how do you do lots that? Of, lots of debate. But we settled on uh, five adults in compact cars, Priuses and fuel efficient vehicles uh, driving across the country. And... Um, we started in California with two cars and uh, I think six of us. And then we added more drivers and riders as we moved across the country. And nice. it was amazing because people who were supportive of the action, but couldn't, couldn't go themselves, you know, offered us lodging and made us meals. And, and then we literally had this organic thing where you'd have at any given moment, somebody new, you know, picked up in Boulder, or wherever and just jump in your car and now you've got eight to ten hours to just talk to people wow um, that's cool and yeah it was super cool but one of the best things we did as part of that trip was one of, for sure one of the reasons i'm sitting here is because we got to stop in west virginia and go to a place called caver mountain and meet a man there named larry gibson who had been fighting the coal industry for 30 years mm -hmm. trying to keep big coal from blowing off the top of the mountain that his family had lived on for 130 years and um it's a huge battle in that in the appalachias um of people who have needed coal for survival but also have been destroying the entire I mean, there's, I don't even know how many. Back then, there were 500 tops of mountains blown off. So wow. who knows today what even the number is. But it was 
again, this juxtaposition because you saw these like beautiful little, they call them the hollers and they're like these little creek um, canyons, very narrow. And then you like wind your way through and all of a sudden this big giant like rumbling like coal truck just comes and almost like shoves you off the road and and it looks like beautiful but there was just this like kind of dead feeling about it all Mm -hmm. and I got it when I got to the top and Larry took us out to look out um at just the moonscape like of what blown off tops of mountains look like after they first you know clear off all what they call the the overburden which is all the trees and um everything that that's so they call there they call the forest the overburden yeah nice and then yeah and then they shove it down the hill the mountain and then clog the creeks and and then it, it it's just devastating and of course nothing grows and um they fly over with like and drop this like seed from China or something that's supposed to make like something grow. And it just, this nothing grows. It's awful. And he took us out there and 14 of us stood out there with him. And he said, don't come here just to take the tour. West Virginia can't do this alone. Take this on your heart and do something with it. Mm. And, and we all just sobbed. And I said, yeah, I'm doing that. This mm. is on my heart and I cannot not see this. Um, and then from there, we ended up eventually in D.C. and got arrested and participated in all that. Um, but that conversation with Larry and then he he died um, a year later. So it was so special to get to see him. Um, wow. Yeah. And um, and then we. We we went, we were delayed to get in to do this action because of Hurricane Irene <laughs> that kept us out. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then we finally made it. But but before we did our arrest action, we got to we were invited to go to a film screening called End Civ, which was based on the book End Game by Derek Jensen. Mm-hmm. And you know, we were documentary watchers, so I was like, okay, yeah, tell me something I don't already know. And oh wow. I didn't know um, until I saw that film. I was starting to piece it all together. I thought we, you know, we were going there to like battle the fossil fuel industry. And what I realized was it's so much bigger than that. Um, and it, it's not about how we power everything. It's that we power everything. Oh, interesting. And it has made us our species, these Homo colossus giants. Homo colossus. What does that mean, Homo colossus? It means we're massive in scale, um, far and above what um, our biological species is because of the harnessing of these fossil fuels energies that have made us these giants capable of doing things like the Alberta tar sands, which is the largest industrial scale project on the planet. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So then what I'm hearing is the human species has far overreached the necessary space that it needs to take up in order to coexist on planet Earth with the rest of Earth. Exactly. 
civilization has always been a model for the past 10,000 years of um, our species being out of whack. Mm-hmm. It's what civilization is. Um, and there's no model of that way of living for our species that has never not failed. I taught ancient world civilizations mm-hmm. um, in to sixth graders in middle school. I have a teaching credential. And prior to my activism life, I was working in education. And so I taught repeatedly uh-huh. to sixth graders, rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. Um, and our current global industrial civilization is no different. Right. It's what civilizations do. They grow more food. They grow more people. They outgrow their land base. They they use up their resources, and then they have to go get more. And it's always done by force to take them from other people and other places, all the other creatures. Um, nobody willingly gives up their resources and their land base. And then it gets too big, and then it has to fail. And yeah. It all looks quite grim, doesn't it? Um, Because this is 2011, right? That all this happened. So, I mean, this is a big, obviously, this is a big trip. Like, it sounds like your entire view of, one, your place in the world, and also the things that you were not aware of completely shifted in that, you know, I guess, couple of weeks that you guys were on the road. Yeah, it, com- it completely shifted for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I um, again, went thinking that we were, you know, going to like get everybody to get on the renewable, in quotes, green, in quotes, energy train. And I realized like, oh, no, this is a much, much bigger situation. And everything that I have built my castle on thus far looks really shaky and crumbly and doesn't align with what I know is true, that I'm a wild creature, just like every other creature we share this planet with. And um, and I got a book in my hands on that trip called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Mm. And it's the story of how things came to be this way. And Daniel Quinn, the author was, um, almost became a Catholic priest. And so he has a very interesting backstory and it wove in really well with my religious upbringing in the Lutheran church. But um, the way he was able to, Daniel was able to move into that book, like it made really clear that civilization is just one story of a way to enact living a life way on this planet, but it's not the story. And our species survived harmoniously for millions of years without enacting that story. And it's enacting that story that has us on this path to collapse um, that every version again of that story has had as a result. And so it helped me understand that when I look in the mirror, I'm seeing a wild creature that's just been domesticated. Mm -hmm. And I had to 
spend a lot of time coming to terms with that and thinking about that on the trip driving back from DC. And so when we got back to our life in the suburbs um, and looked around it, just like this really manicured mm. comfort and convenience and we're raising ki- kids in that and um, just went, this is hollow and empty and this does not align with that promise that I made to Larry and we have to do something different. So we quit our jobs. This is um, my now husband and partner, Mm -hmm. Jordan. We quit our jobs. We cashed out every retirement thing that we could. And we found this place in the woods up near Colfax, California, in the foothills of the Sierras, where we found a place that was distressed and needed love and that we're just not going to keep talking the talk. We're going to try to walk the walk. Yeah. Uh, and so we did. <laughs> we brought yeah. five kids here um, and started trying to experiment with living differently. So I really wanted to talk a little more about the feral seeker. And when is it that where did you recognize, name, and embrace your own wild creature. So when we moved here in 2012 and started what we were intending to do, which was build a permaculture farm, Hmm. because we thought we were, that was a thing we were doing, was moving to here to grow food and try to be sustainable and all of that. So like real quickly, what exactly, what's a permaculture farm? Permaculture is a method of farming that is um, based on a closed loop system where it's all integrated, trying to be more integrated with the land base where you've got chickens and ducks and rabbits that are helping to create the, build the soil and create fertility and so... But you basically do all the all the things to be self-sustaining and have minimal impact right. on right minimal negative impact. That's that's the idea. Mm-hmm. Is it's a better way to farm. Okay. Um, and so we had learned all we could about it and thought, oh, that sounds better. So we'll give that a try. And it was through trying to do that that I started to recognize more and more that. That was just another top-down controlling system, a way of trying to force our will onto a land base and get it to yield to what we wanted it to do, rather than arriving here as humble participants and listening to what the land base wanted from us and how we could participate. And so over time, we realized that trying to control chickens, for example, and keep them in cages so that they wouldn't be running all around, ripping up all the baby plants and, um, you know, trying to keep ducks in check and, and then trying to also do the same thing to plants to control how they grew and when they grew and um, what creatures we would be allowed, uh, we were, would be allowing to interact with them and the creatures that we didn't want interacting with them because they would eat them. And then, you know, it was just this constant, like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And, wow. and 
Um, and at the same time, we were also um, trying to live as inexpensively as we could. And being energy activists, we were targeting energy first um, as a way to, you know, how much does it cost you to be alive every day? Well, how much is it are you paying to power your life? So we were learning to live with, you know, very minimal light and the only heating and cooling here. Um, we didn't have any air, AC or fans. We were, we, our heat source is wood burning. And so we were, you know, needing to chop wood and make fire. And, um, and so starting to be so much more like live like you're camping, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the time. That's what I would tell the kids. Like, you know, yeah, you can still do your homework by candlelight, you know, or, you know, something really a small amount of light and, um, and starting to tap in more to these, this creature that I am. Um, and then feel, seeing that, that, that it wasn't a good model for us with trying to do this farming thing. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's morphed over time into a food forest where we're feeding other creatures. Like right now we have tons of bees and bumblebees and um, not because we have hives or anything like that, but because they're choosing to be here because of what, of what's growing here that they need and love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so we're much, it's much more about that. And participating rather than controlling. But that helped me become much more wild and then having the time to slow down Mm -hmm. uh, and just interact with the creatures that are here and become friends in some description with the uh, wild creatures here. But it was like learning another language, honestly, um, to push back on the whole dominant way that culture had been programmed into me and have to push back and and say, oh no, this is, I, I can run around barefoot. Hurts at first, but I can do that over time and I can see in the dark and I, I can feel more wild and free. It's possible. And then, yeah, so then what is it, are you able to describe how it feels for you to feel more wild and free? Great question. Um, just so much more connected to the all of all, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, this is, this is my little story, but I'm just part of this really big story and this big, um, universal consciousness being whatever the little part that I am that is connected to it is so much more i feel that so much stronger Mm -hmm. um, because it it i am it and it is me Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean you kind of frame it like you know your little story but it also sounds like you you get 100 percent that you matter your actions matter. And, and yeah, yeah, and the actions of each and every one of us matters. And um, it matters in the same way, you know, a nerve in your body, one nerve matters. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm like my soul is is like a nerve in this great being mm-hmm. that I'm connected to. We're energy, we're energy beings. Mm-hmm. Um, the energy flows through me, it flows through the frog, it flows through the tree, it flows through the water, it flows through the soil. It's all part of the same energy system. Yeah, oh, I got that. So then in what ways do you, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a total transformation, you know, to, to reprogram oneself to live that way. You don't just like say, oh, I'm just going to do this now. And it happens like you, there, you have to like practice stuff in order to make it hopefully second or first nature. Right. So in like what ways have you been able to what practices have you done to to tap into that connectedness and to to have it be who you are? Like what, what was that bridge like? First of all, we all have the knowing. So you don't really have to go find it. You already have it. And just like, you know, a butterfly has the knowing, a bird has the knowing, a fir tree has the knowing. Our our species has the knowing. So it's there. Mm -hmm. Um, The first thing that I really had to do was slow down. I had to slow down the hectic craziness of my life and all the distractions that were um, enticing me to put my focus on a whole bunch of other things. And I had to start recognizing how much um, less is more Mm -hmm. and go small Mm -hmm. and then um, recognizing all the the ways that I was um, connected to the machine that were toxic to my who I feel like I truly am and want to be. And so starting to strip those away. Um, I'll use holidays as an example. I was huge into holidays. And, but I started being like, no, these are just like distractions and consumer things. And so I started rejecting them all, um, which was a challenge. But what I decided that made more sense was um, to filling back in with um, honoring practices related to the changing of the seasons. Mm-hmm. Which is where our holidays really came from anyway. Right. And so you know instead of doing christmas we honor solstice Mm -hmm. winter solstice and instead of easter we recognize the spring equinox Mm -hmm. and to just tap into the seasons and the earth rhythms and where this paying attention to where the earth is in relation to the rest of the universe and you know I got, Jordan and I slept outside for four years, which was amazing. And I get that most people probably can't just go sleep outside, but even if you can do that for a little bit and just spend time like that. The the lights at night is such a huge one. 
Um, it really, it really yanks you out of your natural rhythms. Um, the, all the artificial inputs that crutches that we use. So when it's dark, it's supposed to be dark, yeah. you know, and our body really needs that time. Mm-hmm. And um, it's actually incredibly surprising when you try to do it, how much you can do with like one little nightlight in a room, how much you can actually see. Um, and I used the en- pulling back on energy as a game. Cause mm. I was like, I wanted to see like how much are we using and how much can I whittle down? And mm-hmm. we had eight people living here with like a $50 electric bill every month. Um, and then, yeah, I did. So, you know, how did the kids feel about the energy police? <laughs> you did know, the family they, buy in or was that a challenge? I think they were at good ages when we did it. They were like between seven and 15. Mm-hmm. And we just had to find balance with it all and figured that if we were at least giving them trees to climb and wood to chop and food to grow and um, different experiences that we were providing at least some sort of balance to the technology world that they were inevitably going to have to be a part of. I mean, that's, that's the part of the dominant culture that, you know, you can go and do something like what we've done but you still can't like be totally free from it i mean we're all in it so now that you've moved into this more uh god what's the word i don't know feral okay it's good it's being feral because you know we the closest a domesticated creature can get to being wild again is to first be go through feral we had a rabbit here um, that somebody brought to us. It was a pet store rabbit yeah. that they'd had in a cage the whole time and their kid wasn't paying any attention to it. And so this friend of ours showed up one day with this rabbit in a cage and he said, here, I don't know what to do with this rabbit. It'll be better off with you. Here you go. And I just went, oh, I'm like, does the rabbit have a name? And he goes, yeah, we call her Stu. I- <laughs> and, oh. and I Okay. Hi, Stu the rabbit. But we didn't have any rabbits. I didn't know what to do. And so we had this like chicken hutch coop area. And so we just put the stew up there in her cage and um, sat her kind of in the chicken area. And and I was like, I I don't want to just keep the cage shut. So we just opened the door to the cage. And we was kind of like, well, welcome to Chickenfoot Ranch. Um, you know, see what you can do. And she, you know, didn't come out for a long for a while, and and then eventually she started to come out and hang out with the chickens, and then eventually she disappeared. And we were like, hmm, okay. Well, lo and behold, we started seeing Stu running around, like outside of the our, our property's fenced all the way around. She was outside, out in the woods, running around, over visiting at ne- neighbors' places and stuff. And um, eventually, she started coming back. Wow! And she, on her own terms, made a relationship with us, where eventually she would come and sit with us and sit in our laps and 
but always on her own terms. And she always had the freedom to just run around and do her thing. And she would taunt our dogs and they had a whole thing going on. And wow. she taught me so much about watching this finding feral, yeah. which is what we did. And so, yeah, that's, that's the term that we, because, you know, we we're domesticated creature. We yeah. live in a domesticated world. We have to participate in it and we're not going to be just able to become wild, but there is a pathway to get closer to that. Yeah, no, I love that. So what, what, how would you suggest to a person, you know, listening to this, that is, you know, anything but feral It's like, oh my God, I'm so domesticated. You know, how, how, you know, how, how does the human bunny come out of the cage? First, you have to see the cage. Ah. So that's the first step. You have to recognize that you're in a cage. Yeah. And then you have to recognize that the cage has a door. And then you have to recognize that you have the ability to go through the door. But it starts with the cage itself. And coming to terms with what civilization is and um, how we're all programmed into it and and how we're not separate that's ridiculous so then what would a world look like where the majority would find feral as opposed to you know where we're at now Freaky and weird and very different from <laughs> anything that it, it currently does, um, which would be a good thing, obviously, because this separate view is what's causing so much trauma and violence and um, disconnection and, you know, pulling like our our species actually has the ability to tank the biosphere that we all depend on for life <laughs> yeah and but it's it's not you know i hear all the time oh humans are flawed and terrible and awful and i'm like yes this version of the story that's being enacted is those things mm -hmm. but as a species we're not those things and the indigenous cultures knew this understood this um and so a much simpler gentler kinder way of living that would be participatory with the rest of the community of life would be what feral would look more like mm -hmm. so you know there's there's all there's all kinds of different ways that people talk about you know, the human being upon the earth, you know, so one of, one of the ways is like, you know, we're all a cell. We're just like, oh, you know, the cells inside your body, each person is a cell inside the earth. And it's like, if I am a, you know, healthy, vibrant cell, then I'm going to contribute to the earth body in a much better way than a, you know, kind of destructive um, energy sucking cell, 
which is kind of all this consumerism and um, blowing the tops off of mountains and, um, you know, all the all the horrible things that 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 are done in the name of progress. You know, it's been fascinating talking to you, and I was just wondering if there was anything that you were, you know, kind of left with in regard to your body, your soul body, and how it, you know, integrates with the earth body. That's a great question. And, you know, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really awesome. Um, I have a soul that is in, that is currently in an earth body. And my soul is connected to this greater being that my soul is a part of. And currently my soul is in this homo sapien creature's body. And this body is connected to the earth. Mm. And it's come from the earth, it's made of the elements of this planet and will return to the earth. And my soul, my spirit is connected to something greater than that. My the the creature that my soul is in is trying to reconnect with all the rest of the creatures on this planet with Gaia. Mm-hmm. And in and, and, and being able to do that, it's set my soul more free to be able to connect with the greater, bigger source. Mm-hmm. Got it. Interesting. I see the opportunity to like really be present to the beauty of the planet that we're on and to be with it and to honor it and to know that we're a part of it. You know, when the pandemic happened and people weren't driving, so like especially here in the Bay Area, it was it was amazing how quickly the sky cleared. And that gave me a lot of hope in how quickly potentially the earth could heal if human beings could just wake up and allow that healing to happen. Yeah, that was a great example for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the, the reality, and that's one of the things, you know, that we lean into is because I'm totally with you on all of that. Um, and I was so grateful that that was one of the things COVID got to, to show people the damage that has been done has been done. So now our challenge as a species is how do we address that? And what work could we do? See, that's what excites me. Like instead of more effort and energy and time going into techno fixes and false solutions and all these things, try to keep civilization limping along a little bit longer. How could we take all of that and put it into, how do we repair? How do we restore? How do we love back? How do we make amends? How do we repent? How do we get back into right relation and connection with this planet we're all a part of? What could that look like for our species? How exciting would that be to be a participant in? 
finding feral. Are there any sparks or spaces of knowingness that have shown up for you while listening to this conversation? What is your metaphorical bunny cage? Is the door open? Closed? Locked? What would it look like to find your own unique pathway into being feral, wild, and free? Or how might you choose to live more harmoniously with this earth body that we all call home? In the final episode of this series we have called Soul Body, I sit down with Amber. I met Amber as a fire dancer who goes by the name of Sheila G. And there was something about her that felt like her expression of dance was grounded in something that maybe stirs below the surface of our lives, some energy that kind of predates the moment that we're sharing right now, like she's connected to some great cosmic soul. That's how she moved in the world. In this interview, she shares the way she has come to both honor her ancestors and the cosmic body that holds us all as she moves with her body in the world. Join us. This episode of Soul Forum has been brought to you by Storycatcher for iPhone, a fun and simple tool that helps you create shareable keepsake video stories. Be the documentarian in your circles. Find Storycatcher, spelt as all one word, on the Apple App Store. You may attend Soul Forum Live each Sunday morning at Creekside Commons in Lafayette, California. The 30-minute presentation is also live-streamed via YouTube and Facebook where people interact via the chat. After the live stream is complete, for those gathering in person, we then enter into a non-recorded group discussion on the day's topic. We'd love for you to join us for Soul Forum.